0: I mean, Mozart, again, to him, he was, a, you know, he, that was further back, but he was a big improviser. That was a big part of what his musicality was all about, like improvise something for us, Wolfgang, you know, so, and all those guys, Chopin and Liszt, they were all able to just play. Keep distance, is what
1: you're Welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast I'm Bill's manager on and harsh I'm also editor in chief of the com. For those of you who are new to the show this week, I handle Bill's intros for him because he hates doing them, and I'm a sucker. Simple as that. Bill's guest today is a huge get for us, and we're absolutely over the moon. Jordan Rudis has been the keyboard player for Prague Legends Dream Theater for more than two decades now. He's been voted the greatest keyboard player of all time by Music Radar readers, and this Juilliard-trained pianist has also done a slew of hired gun work, including on Bowie's 2002 album Heathen, which is a sleeper in the catalog and one of my personal favorites. On top of that, he's founded the software company Wisdom Music, which has created all sorts of amazing music technology platforms for iPhone and iPad. His latest tool, GeoShred, is super gnarly. I'm so excited for you all to hear this interview. But first, Patreon folks, let me take a second to thank all of you. You've kept us all going while Bill is sidelined from touring due to COVID. Patrons get early access to episodes, bonus content, secret merch bundles, discord roles, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Mr. Bill's tunes to subscribe. Finally, please head over to Mr. to sign up to become a hardcore abletonier. you get full access to Bill's project files and tutorials access to sample packs. And there's a lot there for producers of all levels. All right, here's Bill's chat with Jordan Rudis of dream theater. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the
2: Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.
1: Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.
2: sweet cool yeah speaking of um recording like on each end and then uh meshing the the recordings together at the end to create like a coherent end product thing that sounds like it was recorded in a studio um have you messed around much with uh collaborating with other artists that way because i guess like you know when i collaborate with other people because i'm an electronic musician we just send the file the project file back and forth right but being more of like a player and, a, and in a band and stuff like that, you would more like more or less be sending your parts in, right? Like audio parts that you play. And then and like, like if, assuming that you're not going to a studio to record sometimes, like, you know, say everyone's busy and touring and on their own schedules and stuff. Have you messed around much with everybody like sending their audio parts into an engineer and then having the engineer kind of like figure it all out on their end?
0: Um, ye- well, I did two albums with uh, Tony Levin and Marco Miniman and uh we did it all at home everybody did their parts at home hmm. so it was all kind of like one person would write the song and then send the files to around and we would just do our parts and then send them in and that would be you know that'd be it except if anybody had a comment but we would go back and change it but hmm. uh yeah i mean i guess you know to a point that's that's i've worked a bunch that way just, and uh, how does uh,
2: the engineer uh, line all of the parts up? I guess you do. You just all play to a click track, and then just say, "All right, my part comes in after four clicks or whatever." And...
0: We always start. You know, we send them files and record from zero, and then they just and then it will line up. I do plenty of like solos and things like that on people's albums, mm-hmm. where they send me something and I'll do a solo, and then I've got it. You know, here at home, and then I've just got to send it back to them, and uh, you know, they I just bounce it from. From zero, basically.
2: Right. Yeah. So I was talking to a... I had a guy on the podcast a couple of days ago who's, who is a keys player who's been to college uh, for that stuff and whatnot. And we are talking about jazz players versus classical players and soloing. Um, and he was saying classical players are insane. Like, they'll spend 12 hours a day in a room sort of, like, learning sheet music. And they're sort of, like, mechanical in the sense that they can just, like, read and play anything, sort of. But they're not so good at, like, improvisation and soloing. Um, would you say you're more on that side of things then the improvisation and soloing side of things or more on the sort of like mechanical reading side of things?
0: Well, that's a really good question. I think that I am really about both things. When I started my, my studies, I had a teacher that was a jazz player, but he was teaching me at the very, very beginning, but he noticed that I had a good ear. So he was, instead of showing me the little red book that everybody learns from, he was uh, teaching me the chords and by teaching me the chords I could then you know look at like a piece of guitar music which might show you just the melody and a chord symbol so uh, what ended up happening was that I I went from that teacher to a more serious teacher who prepared me for the Juilliard school which is of course the most serious classical school there is so my teacher there didn't want to know anything about my improvisational skills but that was to me always the really fun musical it was a really fun musical part of who i am and what i do so uh even through my most serious studies at juilliard i'd have to hide that a little bit but i kept it going so there was always a real balance for me between like really studying to play you know whatever classical piece of music was in front of me and also keeping my uh my personal musicality uh going improvising Mm -hmm. playing other kinds of music and I'd have secret meetings of the Juilliard kids down the hall in a practice room, and I'd play them some like boogie woogie and like <laughs> blues stuff, and we would all chuckle and think it was funny because we were, you know, hiding out from the from the teacher, the classical teacher, with the whip, you know.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, that was like probably back in the day where hitting children was fine, right?
0: Right, right. That's, that's <laughs> that was the best way to uh, to get good really quickly because you didn't want to get attacked with a, uh, you know, like a foot to your to your ankle or something or.
2: Yeah, now you can't even attack people with words or you get fired exactly. as you
0: have to Exactly, you have to be too careful, mm-hmm.
2: right? Which is kind of good. I mean, you know, society right now feels, apart from you know, COVID and everything being on fire and all of that kind of stuff, feels generally societally somewhat safe in terms mm. of you know, violence. That and kind of thing. Not getting offended.
0: Yeah. Right, right. Aside from all the wacky stuff that's going on in the world right now.
2: Yeah, if you minus uh, literally everything, it's pretty it's not bad. <laughs> yeah, if you take all the crazy,
0: like <laughs> horrible things away, it's actually looking pretty good, man. Yeah, I agree. That's that's funny. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um good way to look at it. So, what do you what do you see? Like the more, uh, do, do you see like more value in one kind of? playing over another like do you do you see more value for instance in somebody being able to just you know have sheet music thrown in front of them and just be able to sort of play it like a machine or do you see more value in in a player who's able to kind of you know improvise and just sort of feel it out as they're going and you know you can play them anything and they can just like adapt to it like what what do you think is like a more valuable skill to have out of those two skills
0: yeah, I mean, you know, with with what I do, I my whole world is based upon my very very solid foundation that I learned, my technique, my you know ability to compose using different um, skills that I learned. Um, so everything is based upon this kind of rooted foundation in, in in piano and composition, and 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 I think all the other other things that I do, all the improvisation, all the you know, um, ear work that I do is just comes kind of on top of that and makes for who I am. It's hard to really say, okay, you know, this one without the other. But of course, you know, not many people are lucky enough to get that kind of really serious classical training. A lot, of, you know, a lot of it is just also about. Since I'm a keyboard player and keyboards are very are a very physical skill, it's about being able to play what's in my head. So if I hear something in my mind, I can put my hand down on the notes and I can actually articulate that. And being an improviser, I can hear it in my head. And if the force is with me, I can play it as as the flow is happening. So I mean that's that's probably of all the things that I do, that's the thing that I that I love the most is when I just really kind of flowing along and there's no interruption in that connection between my brain and what I'm feeling hearing in my head musically and what's coming out and having it be like a conversation that's very smooth where it just kind of goes from point a to point b and it's just liquidy and just goes
2: right yeah i feel the same way about production a little bit it's like the better you get at your software eventually you can it just becomes kind of like another limb and like Mm. getting information out into it like the stuff that you're hearing in your head and and the ideas that you have uh, is there's like not a lot of friction between you know your thought and that happening
0: yeah i guess like how do you how well do you know your tools right you hear something uh, and you know where you're gonna go to get that sound it's probably yeah that's the ideal thing i mean that's what
2: i think what every musician or producer should strive for right is uh, or anyone doing anything really it's like you really want to strive to have like as little friction as possible between thoughts and like tangibility
0: basically right right it's an interesting thing to think about like well, in your world of production with electronic music, where you're not necessarily you know playing the notes in real time, where you might be entering them one by one, or you might be working with loops or patterns, in that it's not like talking, but it is still something where you just need to be able to move through time and get to your goal at a good rate and you and not interrupt the musicality of the you know whatever inspiration is happening.
2: Well, it's not like talking right. in real time like we are now. I would compare it more to like writing, right? Or like, you know, when you're sending an email to someone, you you're sort of writing and it's and it's like your thought is coming out into the email in real time as you're right. typing, but right. then you might go back and like rethink it. Well, and edit it's, it's
0: composing. And it. It's composing basically, right?
2: Yeah, pretty much. Speaking of which, I had a question um, about composers. Like you have these classical people, right, who sort of sit down for twelve hours a day, or whatever, in front of a piano, and just like read stuff that composers <clears throat> have written, and, and just play it exactly as the composer had intended, or or interpreted in their own you know similar way to everybody else as as the composer you know wrote it in such a way that it can only be interpreted a couple of ways or whatever. Um, but aren't the composers who wrote these pieces kind of improvisers in that way? Because they either played it out in real time and were like oh that's sick and then wrote it down or uh they sort of just like as we were just saying in in the sense of writing an email and then editing or whatever they would you know sit at their candlelit table with a quill and a piece of manuscript paper (laughs) or um, a staff (laughs) paper or whatever and just sort of write stuff down like as they were thinking it right so in some form or another it's like the composer had to you know have a bunch of improvised thoughts that he was writing down or playing and then writing down later or whatever Right.
0: correct or like, yeah i think so absolutely i you know you think of this like the stories of mozart or something like that and you know he hears it in his head then it's just like you kind of rush to get it down by having your pencil in hand and writing it all down
2: mm. so know. why um in the classical world do people put this music that essentially was an improvised piece of music that's been written down and and played for centuries on a pedestal, but they don't put improvisation on a pedestal?
0: Yeah, that's a big question. You know, years ago, maybe like 150 years ago, improvisation was part of what was going on in the classical world. Nowadays, yeah, people don't improvise at a classical concert, but I mean, Mozart, again, to him, he was, you know, that was further back, but he was a big improviser. That was a big part of what his musicality was all about, like improvise something for us Wolfgang, you know. So and all those guys, Chopin and Liszt, they were all able to just play. So somehow along the line, it got very narrowed and stiff. And it's really a shame because I think that that's it just. You know, you, find, you, you, you hear these people who do go to the classical music school, but they just sit there, like you said, and they'll work all day. They'll be able to play like almost like a machine and get these notes out in a certain time and at a certain velocity. And, you know, they're tr- training themselves to get that done. That to me is, is further away. It takes you away from the music. I mean, the music is written by these guys who had the ears and the sensibility to let the music just kind of like, you know, come out and be inspired and flow and maybe and and kind of improvised, even if it was actually written down. So, yeah, that's an interesting. It's it's it always interests me, and it always like saddens me that we kind of got into this place where classical music has become, uh, you know, more more. Uh, I don't know, stale or boring because you just get this feeling like they're not free. They're not just freely expressing.
2: Right. But as a, I guess like the um, opposite side to that is maybe unlike jazz musicians so much or, um, you know, metal musicians or you know, whoever else, uh, classical musicians definitely probably have the upper hand on sight reading right where they can just right, sort of put right. something in front of them and just play it because that's what they're sort of trained to do is just right, like right. recite what, is already sure. what has already happened on sheet music, yeah. right, um, right. which is awesome and that's a crazy tool to have when you have 60 of those people in the same room together right so i had a friend right. at rmit university in uh in australia in melbourne actually mm-hmm. yeah and he wanted to <laughs> develop this tool for ipad where you put an iPad in front of each player. Hold on. Okay. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I have this uh, spray bottle here cuz my cat likes to jump on top of my speakers and attack uh, my speaker cones. Oh, so to,
0: not good. Not good. Yeah. Yeah, make sure she doesn't do that.
2: Um so yeah, my friend wanted to create this iPad app where you put an iPad in front of each player of the um orchestra. Yeah. And then it just sort of generates sheet music in real time. And just like the iPad just scrolls through sheet music, in, and it's just generating it all in real time, and then oh, sixty wow. people play it, right? Like, and they're all trained to sight read and play stuff as it's created. So yeah, you could get this like really well articulated playing from yeah. the, from these people who actually are trained to do that. But it's all digitally generated in right, real time, right. but the yeah. idea got shot down by the classical community because they were like, "No, that's sacrilege to the classical way. you can't do that. that would technically be improvising. screw that, but
0: <laughs> so it was the computer that was generating the notes, yeah, they said no it no it's all that. A generated program, yeah, I mean, you could get a robot to do that too, right to do the playing part,
2: yeah, but I mean, I don't think we've quite got robots to the point where you can. Uh, yeah. Articulate a say violin the same way a human can. Right.
0: Well, talk to some of our Japanese friends and see what they say about that one. Yeah,
2: I, I mean, I suppose <laughs> I think they have some pretty get, advanced
0: um, robots, but I'm not sure exactly what point it's at if you could do that. But mm. yeah. I mean,
2: you definitely have uh, robots that can perform surgery now. Did you uh, see the thing that Elon Musk released? Like, I think it was this week, earlier this week or last week, called the Neuralink. No. Dude, this is insane. So Elon Musk's new thing is you go into a hospital on your lunch break and you can go home the same day and they cut a hole out of your skull that's about the size of a maybe, I don't know, quarter. yeah. Um, And then they put what's called a Neuralink in there. It's like a little computer disk with a thousand or so wires, like very small wires coming out of it that get uh, probed into your brain. And then they super glue this disc into the hole that they created in your brain, and then you basically have a computer connected directly to your brain.
0: Well that's like uh, that's just like my last solo album. That was the concept, <laughs> Wired from Madness. Is have that you heard like, Was that it? the Did concept? you check it out? It was pretty much like that. Huh. it was the whole it was a kind of a story if you will like guy goes mm. in for this operation where he gets his you know becomes partly computerized and gets his brain wired so he doesn't have to deal with the uh, daily you know kind of thinking in life and the computer takes over and things become easier and yeah i mean it's very similar concept that's very interesting that, yeah, that so was that's announced.
2: now, and he's already tested it on pigs and the pigs seem to be completely healthy and fine, and, and they can like test information coming from them and whatnot. Because when mean, you think about it, like we're already kind of cyborgs, right? Like We already are attached to our phones and stuff. It's just that the bandwidth between us and our phone, like the data transfer between us and our phone, is very slow. Mm, mm. So if you take away the hand and the eye data transfer, like where all the data is coming and going from, and transfer it to a chip that's super glued into your skull, then you you can up that data transfer rate quite a bit. So was he creating the super pig? Super what?
0: Super pig.
2: Oh, uh, I mean, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) What a
0: concept. Like all of a sudden the pig is walking around and he's smarter than the person.
2: Right, yeah. He's like walking on two legs and has thumbs and shit.
0: He's jamming like and playing lead guitar <laughs> he knows the complete repertoire from Hendrix to Vi to Segovia. You know, like, mm. could be,
2: yeah. Speaking of guitarists, um, I used to be super into guitar. uh hey, and I've got to haven- cut that out
0: back there. You're scratching at the, <laughs> I'm talking uh, to your yeah. cat. She's just scratching her cat pole. Yeah. That's fine. That, oh, that's okay. That's good. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. She's supposed yeah. to scratch that. Yes, exactly. Exactly.
2: Um, yeah, speaking of guitarists, uh, I used to be a huge fan of guitar. I was massively into Steve Vai. I was massively into um, Hendrix. Uh, and I was massively into John Petrucci as well uh, and like Joe Satriani and all of that yeah, kind of stuff. All the good players. Uh, who,
0: who, who are your favorite guitarists? Well, I think we just named a lot of them. Mm. <laughs> Definitely, I'm a big Hendrix fan. I mean, that goes way back. I mean, I think Hendrix was always the coolest one. You know, yeah, just, he
2: wasn't sterile, right? Like he's one of those kind of players that was sort of improvisational. Just, and his whole his, that it was his like
0: whole being, you know, this, yeah, his whole being just reeked of groove and coolness. He was the ultimate, you know, kind of tripped out, cool guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a big fan of Vi, also. Like you said, um, big fan of Jeff Beck. Uh, these days, I'm a big fan of Guthrie Govan, people like that, and uh, Bumblefoot. who's uh, Romthal, that's his code name, Bumblefoot. Um, Yeah, some great players. And of course, Petrucci. I mean, John Petrucci just put out a new album, Terminal Velocity, which has a, a, his tone is astounding. It's incredible guitar tone. It's beautiful. Does he uh, make all those tones himself? Um, I think he, he's, he's very much into his gear. You know, he's doing a lot of it. I think he has some help from engineers as well that, you know, kind of assist with, with things, miking positions and stuff like that when he's recording and, you know, he's, no man is alone, but so he has his team, but yeah, I mean, he's gets a great, he's always been all about, you know, tone and spends a lot of time on his tone.
2: Mm. Similarly, um, with you and your tone, because you're playing a lot of keyboards, which are essentially synthesizers. uh, Would you do you spend a lot of time on the kind of sound design for your sounds that you play or do you sort of just use presets or do you have other people design the sounds for you or is it kind of like a collaborative process?
0: Um, I spend a lot of time programming. I'll use a lot of starting points, you know, since there's so many sounds out there, this, I mean, gobs and gobs of sound libraries, uh, every shape and size. So a lot of times I feel like I don't have to invent the wheel again, but what I will do is go find a sound that's a little similar to what I want, and then I'll shape it, you know, sometimes it's just basic stuff, just changing the release time or changing the filter a little bit or, you know, getting what I need. Uh, I do a lot of like, Combinations or multi sounds as a keyboard player, where I'll mix, like, you know, some kind of strings, and maybe I'll put a little bit of choir in there and and find a pad that goes with it. All different ways to kind of achieve what I'm thinking about. And there's a lot of sounds that I call them like my prog sounds, where where I want to have a nice attack and it really feels strong. Under my fingers, it's more than like just a piano or something, or just a simple synth. I'll layer I'll, again, layer a lot of sounds where I'll use like a some kind of a um, uh, marimba sound or a xylophone, even just to get that attack. And I'll put it just enough in there that when I press a key, you don't say to yourself, That's a you know, a mallet instrument, but you think it's got a real you know, hit to it. So, and maybe I'll put a little some kind of a keyboard and a little bit of a marcato kind of string sound, and a lot of this, a lot of the sounds end up being seven or eight layers, and uh, or more, and they are, you know, they just make up the, the tone. So I definitely have a lot of, you know, signature kind of sounds that I use, um, in my work. There's no doubt.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Um, so I have a friend. His name's Patrick Leonard. And he produced a lot of music for people back in the day. He produced like uh, Madonna's Like a Prayer uh, and he produced um, a bunch of stuff. But uh, he played keyboards for Michael Jackson on the Thriller tour. And he told me that back then to do this layering that you're talking about, right, where you like, you know, you want a little bit more transient on your sound or you want like more width uh, or something like that. They all they had was Yamaha DX7s, basically, oh, which at the time funny. was like the cream of the crop. Synth. Right, right, it was like the sure. best shit. Yeah. Um, and because they didn't have, you know, these crazy multiprocessor, uh, multi-layerable single units, what they would do is they would send MIDI from the one unit that he had on stage that he was playing right. to like a giant uh, MIDI pipe that would then output MIDI to like 20 DX7s off the side of the stage. (laughs) And then all of those DX7s would output into a big mixer. And then they'd like combine all of the sounds on a mixer. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how he'd get his big, thick synth sound is is through literally triggering like 20 hardware
0: synthesizers at the same time. They had those racks, this TX816 or something like that it was called, of all the like, like FM, like. DX7 kind of in a rack unit at one point and people would have a couple of those big units. I remember that and that was like the thing. Um, yeah, I was talking to somebody about FM synthesis actually uh, yesterday. We were saying that it's there's still magic there, you know, it's still uh, some some cool stuff. But man, how things have changed. You know, you can get these synthesizers now where, you know, like a workstation and like Roland, Korg, Yamaha, you can layer... Up to sixteen parts on some of these, so you could have massive layers right there. Yeah, the, the just with a excellent. single synth. You mean? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I use, when I play with Dream Theater, I use a Korg Kronos, uh, and any sound from the outside world that I need to get in, I'll just sample into it. And then I have my combination mode where I just sometimes have these really big sounding things with Taurus bass pedal sounds on my pinky and huge strings and choirs and maybe sound effects on different keys. And yeah, that's kind of like my world these days.
2: Yes, layering is super important. I mean, that's a, a big part of my world as well, right? Cuz like a big part of my music is not dependent so much on like the songwriting and like the melodies and the chord progressions and all that, but it's, it's really dependent on the sound design. And yeah, I do a lot of that stuff as well. Like for instance, I I design all my own drums, and when I design say a snare, I'll layer a little bit of kick drum under it just to give it like that extra bit of like, oh, nice. low sort of transient oomph. And then yeah. um Yeah, even when I make synth sounds, quite often I find myself layering like a small amount of kick drum transient under the synth sound just so that the sound is like more punchy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, sometimes what I'll do, it's almost like, well, that's functional. But like within dream theater, if we're playing a super fast riff, something that just burns and is crazy, you know, the, the bass and the guitar can only get so much articulation in and so much of an impact on the transient of the, you know, of the sound. So I'll go in and I'll put one of my layers to be just like a a real, a hit sound or something. It's like something that has an absolute attack and put that under it. So when I double it with them, it's, yeah, I'm doubling it because it's cool to double the sound, but I'm also doubling it to try to allow the part to function to where you hear each individual attack of the note. Which, hmm. So like you know, some of the sounds you play on the keyboard are not actually uh,
2: tonal they're more just like a uh, like a drum almost that yeah, you're using yeah. to layer with the guitar very,
0: very similar to what you're saying. I'll take a literally a percussive sound and it doesn't have to be an exact pitch but I'll put it in there so when I go da 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 it'll have that little thing that gives you that feeling of impact for every note. Hmm.
2: I suppose you could think of the whole band that way, right? Like if you're playing that rift, and then yeah. say Mike Portnoy is doing double kicks off, like right, bada, 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 right. bada, like that's kind of a kick drum layer to the melody that you're playing, and it's kind of like yes. kick drum layer, melody layer, right, guitar right. layer, it's like the whole band is yeah, sort of right, a layering right.
0: system. Yeah, is it a pitch? Right, are you adding a pitch? Are you adding a noise? And how is the, what's the end result? I mean, that's totally what it's all about. The funny thing to think about though is like, You know, when we take our music out, whether it's electronic music or it's rock music like my band, we'll go and we'll play really big places where there's maybe a bunch of reverb in the room. Then you start going. (laughs) It's like, whoa, that can get very cloudy sounding, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, That's another reason why why I'll try to add you know, some kind of a sound that gives things more definition, because I know we're going to take it into rooms where they're not really made for uh, 64th notes, you know?
2: Yeah, I actually think about that sometimes with a lot of my music as well. I I notice that um, the stuff that sounds the best in really reverberant rooms is the simplest, driest music, you know, stuff with a lot of space in it and stuff that isn't produced with a lot of reverb in it. Because then it's kind of like the room adds all the liveness to it that you would want. And then the track automatically then sounds like very clean.
0: Yeah, I've always wanted the companies like Korgs and Roland's and Yamahas and all these people to, to have something like a global kind of reverb control. And what I mean by that is, let's say you go into every patch that you make, right? And you have it all set. For your, for your composition, this sound has a little reverb, this sound has a lot of reverb. And, you know, when we're, when we're finding our sounds, we're thinking what it sounds like with our speakers, our headphones. But when you go to a gig and you have all those sounds of different amounts of reverb, but you're like, okay, this room has, you know, a seven second delay in it, then you want to be able to pull it all back. It'd be nice to have one control, like on Micronos, that would be, okay, this is a global re- reverb change where it takes away, you know, a certain percentage of the reverb that's on all the patches, depending on where you're playing. Because, you know, as you said, it's, you know, it's going to change for every, uh, every room that you're playing in. And it'd be nice to be able to make an adjustment. Unless you're, you know, unless you're improvising or something like that, and you're, uh, you 're listening to the room and you 're reacting to the room mm. right that's that 's the thing I played in a in a in a church at Stanford University, and I went in there with the idea that the concert would be very much about the room, knowing i wasn 't going to be playing music that I composed somewhere else and just trying to kind of place it in this room, no matter what it was more that i was you know I came in there with sounds. But I was going to be listening to the room and improvising and allowing things to ring and reacting to what I heard and what I felt from the space.
2: Yeah, I always notice that when I go into somebody else's studio, uh, like a producer's studio, and listen to their tunes in their studio where they wrote them, Mm -hmm. they always sound so insanely good. But then when you listen to them outside of that context, it's never never the best or it's it's not never the best but it's never, never quite could, as good as when right. you listen to it in their studio yeah. in the exact yeah. way that they intended for it, for it to sound and there's an argument that gets thrown around a lot in um the film scoring world for this which is like they don't want to treat their rooms as much as you maybe normally would treat a control room like a real studio or whatever and, and a good example of this is like Hans Zimmer's studio or Junkie XL uh his studio Um, most of their studio is like synthesizers which basically turns your walls into metal right because synths are like this (laughs) just metal panels which is terrible for acoustics and um, you know they won't have a lot of treatment they'll maybe have like hanging curtains or something like that because that's kind of how a theater is right it's just some hanging curtains and then they'll have like these big far loud speakers rather than like these really close tight monitors and stuff like that and they'll essentially try to get it closer to what it's going to be like um you know at a theater because if you know what's the point of like making this really tight and sterile sounding control room if the people who are ever going to listen to the film or whatever are never going to be able to listen to it in that environment so you might as well make it closer to the environment that it's going to be mostly enjoyed in which for a you know an artist might be a venue right so there's like kind of an argument for maybe writing music or producing music in larger untreated rooms through loudspeakers but i mean i guess it's for a lot of people just totally unfeasible
0: i mean yeah i think that it's really important to have an awareness of where you plan to bring your music and how people are going to be listening to it i mean nowadays it makes sense to uh you know do a mix and check it on your iphone you know like just to see if See if it sounds good and the way the people are going to be listening to it. iPhone, iPad, computer speakers, uh, you know, just kind of check it everywhere. Mm, But I think I do do that
2: quite a bit with um, subs because, you know, I I understand a lot of people listen on iPhones and through AirPods and stuff like that. So I'll listen uh, or I generally don't check it on an iPhone anymore, but I kind of have developed tricks for making it sound like sub exists on iPhone. And what you do is you make your sub, which is essentially just like a low sine wave, right? Right. And then you sort of distort the second and third and fourth and fifth harmonics. Like you take harmonics of the sub. So, you know, if you're using... um, uh, a synthesizer like operator enables Ableton that has a coarse mode, which is essentially in a, images of the fundamental frequency. Then you create a second, third, fourth, fifth harmonic in like a chain and then slightly distort each one to kind of create this like phantom image of subs. So if you're on an iPhone, you'll hear the yeah. top harmonics, but then you'll sort of hear the harmonic below that slightly quieter and then the next one slightly quieter again. And it sort of tapers down and your brain sort of fills in the blank. Where it thinks that there's sub down there, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Getting very scientific about it, as you should. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to be. I think when when your entire, <clears throat> I mean, you get you probably get super scientific as well. But from a like more note-driven perspective, right? It's kind of the same thing with production, where you get super scientific about it. But the value of the music isn't so much based around uh, like. Crazy songwriting and stuff like that, and the, and, mm-hmm. and it is based around sound design. So instead, right, the scientific right. thinking goes
0: down that yeah, route instead of right. the um, right. instead of the other one. Right, and of course, the idea of putting both those worlds together is a really good one. Totally, yeah, <laughs> right. that's the ideal, I suppose. It takes more time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and demands a uh, a different kind of an audience as well.
2: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, speaking of like digital. Uh, the digital sort of more sound designy techie world. I, I wanted to talk a bit about um, wisdom music, because.
0: Oh, shit! What are you doing, YouTube? Hey, stop knocking things over. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, because you. I mean, you're super into developing software. It seems like, or yeah, you know, developing fine, yeah. apps. And I'm looking at your Wikipedia page now. Some of them that you've developed is SampleWiz, which is a touchscreen enabled sampler. Mm-hmm. uh Morphwiz which is a touchscreen music creation controller, Geosynth which is a digital music controller interface, right. Tachyon which is an app for mixing, Leap Motion which is yet to be released but is a touchless music controller with four-finger location in 3D creating music versus according to the finger locations. I've already seen the Leap Motion controllers which is like you use your hand in right. in real right. space to That's control cool. something. Right. Um, right. Harmony Right. HarmonyWiz, which is an advanced harmonic generator, which can create multi-part harmony from just a single musical line. The JordanTron, which is all your sounds from your live se- your live setup in, t- in your iPad. Um, SketchWiz turns your camera into a personal sketch artist. <laughs> EarWizard trains your ear while you're, you're, improving your skills. You're bringing me way back. yeah. Right, GeoShred, right. which is an app that allows musicians to create mind-bending guitar sounds and effects on an iPad. Um, yeah, it's crazy, man. How, how long... Have you been into well, this yes, uh, app development
0: stuff? Well, the uh, since the iPhone originally came out, I've been doing this into it. I was very inspired by the whole multi-touch uh, experience, moving my finger on the screen and thinking, wow, there's a lot of cool stuff you could do with this. So my first app was actually called MorphWiz, mm-hmm. and it uh, changed a lot of things for me because it, re- it, it was a cool app. Uh, and it was uh, an award-winning app, too. It won the Billboard Award for the best music app that year, which was nice in the sense that it kind of set me up so that everything I did after that got a lot of attention Mm -hmm. so I could keep on doing it, keep on playing around. So these days, the main kind of push and the main app that I've been working on is GeoShred. GeoShred has become a platform, um, and actually in a couple of weeks, we're going to be releasing... Uh, all these new instruments for GeoShred. It's going to be, it's very exciting. We teamed up with a company called Audio Modeling and we're releasing um, various physical models. So you'll be able to, people will be able to buy as like an in-app purchase on their, uh, for their iPhone or their iPad. Um, the, the cello model, or the violin model, there's also the clarinet and the oboe and the saxophone and the flute and they're beautiful sounding models, extremely realistic. And of course, GeoShred is also a very powerful MIDI controller. So uh, you don't need to use the sound, any of the sounds in GeoShred. You can use it as a MIDI controller. And it functions very much like a seaboard or an instrument. It's that kind of like MPE controller, where every note is completely uh, independent. So you put your finger down, and you can bend one note and not the other, or you can push up and Yeah, get for people kind of who modulation. don't
2: understand what MPE is, because a lot of my listener base is probably Ableton users, and Ableton doesn't have mm-hmm. MPE. Um, it stands for multi-pitch expression or something like that, right? And then basically what it means is, like, if you draw a chord in your DAW, uh, you can take the top note of the chord and, say, pitch it one way, and then the bottom note of the chord or the middle note of the chord and pitch it another way. So what you're saying is, with this app, you can kind of put five fingers on the uh, on on your phone screen and pitch each uh, yeah. note separately, and, and and also, as long as the and, thing you're sending yeah. it into, whether it be like Bitwig or something, yeah. can can That's adjust right. for that. Then,
0: yeah, basically any MIDI controller you can send from your touch. So I think it's multi polyphonic expression, and and it, if I wanted to just have you know filter assigned to the uh, Y axis, any note that I push up on the Y axis or You know, like certain iPhones will still do the Z, which is pressure. You could assign something to pressure, and every finger is completely independent, very unlike standard synthesizers where you play a chord and you move the pitch wheel or a joystick and everything kind of changes. Um, This is the kind of like a more musical approach, more like a guitar or something like that, where every finger is its own kind of like independent control. So GeoShred is about that. So it, func- it functions as a controller um, and it also functions as, as its own sound engine. You can also, you can use it as a tone module so you can, you know, play it from a keyboard or from a seaboard or from an instrument or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's kind of an exciting time for us because we're about to release this whole new, you know, area of... Uh, you know, physical, physically modeled sounds, which uh, are very, very inspiring.
2: Mm. Um, and when you first got into this app development world, uh, was it more to create like a second financial stream from Dream Theater or was it more just because you found it interesting and, and cool? Or?
0: Yeah, I wasn't really thinking about money at all honestly i was just doing it cuz i was like wow man this cool stuff that can happen here i've always mm-hmm. been really uh you know kind of hypersensitive to sound and interested in ever since i turned my first dial on a synthesizer i was kind of like this is awesome i just felt a real connection to it in a very different way than I, in anything i was doing acoustically so um you know that kind of like Move from like hardware synthesizers, and when I got the opportunity to try things on touch screens, I was like, "Wow, this is awesome! Check out what you can do." And I and a lot of people say, "Oh, but you're playing on like glass, you know, whatever, just a sheet of glass." I'm like, "Yeah, but it's awesome!" Like, first of all, there's so much you can do with like visual visuals. The way your brain works is kind of like you, if you touch it and you present a certain visual you can forget what you're even touching. Like an example being like there's some applications uh, that have like you press down on, on on a zone and it might have like a string. And if you press it, you know, in a certain way, the string will vibrate. And you forget that it's not really vibrating because you think your touch, you're like, you, you can't totally separate what you're seeing and what you're hearing and what you're touching. There's kind of a a point where, we, where it all kind of comes together. And it's, it's really interesting to think about that and to play with that. And um, of course, the more control better. I mean, it'd be great if iPads had had uh, Z, you know, they have X being left and right and Y uh, vertical, but Z is something that they've unfortunately left out of all, the, of all the iPads. But there's just so much you can do. It's when you start thinking about having every finger be its own independent controller. So like on Mm. GeoShred, every note, every note area, which you can size, you can have the notes be very small, you can have the notes be very large, and you have that space in there to do any kind of like control. So you can set it for absolute mode or relative mode and relative mirrored mode and really uh, do some very expressive, wonderful things. And do you use this... uh
2: uh, this app either in the any of the shows you do with Dream Theater or, or whatever or do you use it in the studio at all to input MIDI into your computer in the production process?
0: Yeah I actually at one point uh, I had my keytar gutted we took out all the keys and we put two iPads in there instead so I would walk out front and I'd be able to to shred a lead on GeoShred and one iPad was just doing visuals, and the other one was just like playing, you know, was GeoShred. So, and I use it in the studio. There's some sounds that I've used uh, a lot. Like um, there's this one that I let me think of the patch name. It's called Fripper. You know, Robert Fripp mm-hmm. uh, it was an amazing guitar player. But I called it ripper i'm spacing out on the second name of the patch but anyway it's this cool patch and basically when you put your finger on it it doesn't make it's just a tiny bit of sound but as soon as you move your finger it's like every patch is almost every um note is like its own volume pedal it's really right. really cool and and what happens is when you move your finger in the x direction after bringing in some volume it it um excites the string it's physical modeling, so you can use X to literally do string excitation, and it creates the it, it allows the sound to sustain more. And then it also has physically modeled uh, amplifiers in there, so you can achieve that effect of a guitarist like moving towards his amp with the guitar. And having it when it starts to feedback, and when you kind of move around the amp and like you're getting all these different feedback tones, GeoShred will do that. So there's like magic when you push your finger up to get volume, move it um, left and right to excite the string, and then use the expression pad, which is on top, to change your position in relationship to the amplifier. Mm. Um, yeah, man, it's so crazy that like these days,
2: Uh, the computer that you hold in your hand like a phone is way more powerful than even like the laptop that I started producing on which was like a Dell laptop with 500 megs of RAM and like you know a a fucking 1 gigahertz processor (laughs) that, or maybe even a 500 megabyte processor it was insanely bad but it's it's just insane that like now that everyone basically has like an iPhone or like you know solid Android (laughs) phone or, or most people at least um, that everyone kind of, with you know, the, a two dollar app or a five dollar app, can make releasable hit music off it if they know what they're doing with setup.
0: Yeah. Right, I, it's incredible, and there's so many tools now. You know, it's all, it's it's great when somebody can find a tool that really functions for them, and they learn how to use it, and they can express themselves with it. Um, in some ways having so many tools is not that great because it's almost like it's overwhelming. Yeah. You got option like, paralysis. Uh, yeah. It's like you have so much software or whatever. You just don't even know what to do. And you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but like, I have a ton of software too, because I'm really interested in sounds and I want to know what everybody's doing. And I mean, you know, I just like the stuff, but uh, when it comes down to actually making music, like, yeah, I might go on a little journey, you know, on down a software route and look for something new or cool that I got. But a lot of times I'll go for something that I just know, mm-hmm. you know, that I'll just go for like Omnisphere or something that just has like a ton of really great sounds. And I know I'll find something really good there. And it's got a really good search engine. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and so just to, just to have tools that, you know function for you that are that are not that far away, that you're not going to have to spend all day like, you know, looking around. And well, it's a different kind of
2: thing, right? Like when you're in the music writing process, uh, quite often you just want to play and get music written but learning new software is a it's like a different kind of exploration it's not like a musical exploration it's more of a technical one and and it's you sort of have to be in that all right i'm gonna sit down and like not write music right now i'm just gonna learn about technical shit and you have to be excited to do that To yeah and you know it's different days i find that like learning about technical shit kind of mindset i have those days where i just want to do that yeah but i have a lot of days where i just want to make music and don't really care about learning a new tool yeah
0: yeah I definitely don't wake up every day with the uh, spirit of uh, adventure in terms of wanting to like learn how to use some new piece of technology but sometimes yeah I mean you kind of have to psych like if you like um, you know you, you get a new piece of hardware you might have to psych yourself up a little bit to take it out of the box and okay let's go you know let's figure this thing out so uh, that's that means that you're not going to be making music that day. You might have some frustration because you might not immediately understand what, you know, how to plug it in or how to where the power button is. But once you find a few things and get settled, you know, you're like, okay. Mm. So, well, it comes uh, back
2: to that thought we we're having earlier, right? About the sometimes the when you're having a thought you want to get it out as quickly as possible with as little friction as possible, right? And there's nothing that's like more friction generating than a new piece of gear or a new piece of software. Right, exactly. You're essentially handicapping yourself. Um, So in regards to app development, uh, how much of that development do you do versus other developers?
0: Well, I'm not a coder. I don't do that part. I do more like I'm more about the vision of what it is we want to create. I organize people, I organize ideas, I I am um, really good at kind of figuring out who's best to do what kind of a task and working with them. So, uh, and I've worked with a whole lot of different talented programmers um, through the years with different kinds of projects, like, for instance, the uh, Harmony Wiz app, which is really a minor musical miracle, the way it works. You basically take your finger and you draw like a line, a curvy line, and it looks at how fast you draw the line, how high, how low you go, and then you hit the Harmony Wiz button, and it creates this really wonderful harmony. So the way that all came about is I was poking around on the App Store, and I saw this app that basically allowed... Creation of like these block chords, like you'd put in a note, you'd input single notes, and then it would decide in like a classical style what chords to put, almost like without a definite rhythm. And when I saw that, I was like, "Oh my god, that's a great idea!" But it would be so much cooler if it actually made music. Let me turn that ringing off. Um, so, so I spoke to the developer and I said, "Hey, you know, that's really really cool, but let's let's do something where we make music with that because you obviously have the rules." Uh, you know, down within your system. So we spent a long time talking about the music and talking about what the real vision would be. I, you know, and my job was to say, look, we don't only want block chords. That's going. It's extremely boring. You know, we want to have movement in it. And then we had to define a lot of mu- lot more musical rules to make it work. So that job was very much about talking to the developer and and really. Um, us both deciding on what we wanted this thing to really do. And so mm. he was the one who could code it. Man, speaking
2: um, of developers, um, after we had the call last week, because uh, I live in San Francisco, right? Like I just know a ton of developers because this is, you know, the tech hub yeah, of right. the universe. Basically, sure. everyone who works here works for like Facebook or Google or, you know, some tech startup. Or yeah, basically, there's a lot of developers here. Right. And um, I went to my girlfriend's house and she lives with like 10 people and they're all developers. Um, and I mentioned, like, as we were having dinner that I chatted with uh, one of the guys from Dream Theater and one of the people at her table, Mayank, uh, he was like, oh, cool. Yeah. Is that Jordan? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> it was. How did you know? And he was like, oh, I was developing an app for him, actually.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. We started on something. It was pretty cool. It was like a granular uh, synthesis type of thing. Mm. Got pretty yeah. far. And then he got kind of busy. Yeah. So when you see him again, tell him, now. Tell, tell him we got to finish the project. Yeah, the granular
2: <laughs> stuff that he's doing. So he, he made this app called bent.fm, which is super cool. It's basically like this big grid, and you can attach like any of the squares to any other square, and it kind of behaves as if uh, like a, you're circuit bending an instrument, but on your oh, phone. Wow.
0: Is it an iOS app? Yep, it's called bent.fm. I wonder if I have that. Is it mm. something recent, or is it something I might? I think it. he made it a while ago. Oh, um, okay. But yeah, it's might really cool.
2: Really talented developer.
0: Bent.fm. Yeah, well, the thing we were working on was very cool, too. There it is. Bent.fm. Circuit. Circuit yep. bending music software. Yep, yep. It's really okay. really cool. Um, how did you find Myonk? Oh, nice. I'll check it out. Um, how did I find I found Myonk because I was doing, um, it was through Stanford University, hmm. actually. Yeah, I think so. I did an artist in relations, uh, artist relation. I did a, um, I was an artist in residence at Stanford University's Karma. And uh, I met a whole bunch of cool people and my yank was one of the people that I kind of met through that whole world. Um, you know, all those people that go there end up being like the head audio person at Facebook or Adobe or Google or Apple. It's a crazy wild world of, uh, you know, super smart people that,
2: so, one of the crazy things that I've noticed about the, the developer world, um, a lot of people who are coders don't become coders because they go to university for studying coding. Like, a lot of them don't go to university, study computer science uh, or you know, programming or anything like that, and mm-hmm. then go on to become a programmer. A lot of them study things like physics and maths and just other things, right? That still require a lot of like logical thinking and mm-hmm. like puzzles mm-hmm. and uh, math. And then go on to just learn the architecture of a you know, something like JavaScript or Python or anything like that, and they're able to just like pretty easily, it seems like, transfer their knowledge from physics or math over to programming pretty easily, and then monetize their skill set that way. Because uh, it <clears throat> it seems like the only thing you can do if you get extremely good at math or extremely good at physics or something like that. Um, if you get ex- extremely good at physics, it seems like mostly what you do is work at a school doing research and get paid by the school to do research projects which is pretty cool and fun but yeah um, maybe not the most fulfilling for some people Uh, and then the other thing that you can do if you're a you know super into math or whatever is i don't know you could do like data analytics or something or you could um you know look at uh, you work for an insurance company and like value up how risky something is like risk analysis or something like that (laughs) so a lot of people um, don't want to do that stuff and they just get into software yeah yeah,
0: I have a friend of mine actually um, who is an extremely talented musician, technical, very technical person. He was always good with things like doing cool videos and good with cameras. And one of the first people to do really cool like split screen videos with the, uh, you know, just great songwriting and all that. And anyway, he kind of at some point he he still makes music, of course, but he was kind of thinking you know, this is really hard. It's hard to make a living doing this. I think he went on the road one time and he was like, I can't do this, you know, and he taught himself to program. Mm -hmm. And now he's doing uh, some, he's been doing some really great stuff. You know, his name is Ayal Amir. He's just a very talented, gifted guy. He just taught himself to program and he's just like a high level, you know, coder now. So yeah, uh, you you can do that pretty
2: easily these days. Um, The same way you can, easily teach yourself anything on the internet these days right like somebody could go on the internet these days and if they were driven enough to do it could probably get a juilliard level music degree just off youtube or wikipedia
0: i guess i think if they were driven enough to do it right yeah exactly like the information is
2: there is what i'm saying right yeah it's like very tough to to have that kind of discipline for sure that a, that a like rigorous academic environment would give you
0: yeah. yeah, there's something about having a teacher kind of check in with you and look at what you're doing that can really help. But look at little, look at the whole guitar kind of uh, generation, you know, where the art of playing the guitar has accelerated so intensely. You think about players like Hendrix, we were talking about, then you move forward years later and you have people like, you know, Vai and, you know, these amazing uh, uh, Tosin Navasi, you know, these guys who were absolutely over the top. And the, the art of the guitar has just, accelerated to a point you've never you know you would have never even dreamed of that and a lot of it is because of the availability of these uh you know apps that can slow things down and youtube and all the technology that supports people who are trying to learn Mm.
2: yeah i think um one thing that helps like uh certain areas of people learning a thing accelerate a lot is just the willingness to share information as well right like for the longest time nobody wanted to share information about production because they were like no this Mm. is like my sound design technique and if you Mm. have that sound design technique then you'll have what I have and then therefore I'm not Mm -hmm. unique anymore right Right. Uh, and then therefore I get devalued and you get more valued and there was like this big thing about like people not wanting to share secrets and stuff but in the last bunch of years production knowledge on the internet has become so prevalent especially on YouTube that uh pretty much anyone can just go on there and get the same degree probably that I got from SAE and uh as a result of that the electronic music community has just gotten so insanely big to the point now where electronic music is like one of the biggest genres on the planet whereas you know 10 years ago it was fucking nothing like everyone thought electronic music was dumb
0: it's amazing how huge it is and how many tools there are to make it mm-hmm. yeah when you think about the, i think the, yeah. the
2: same thing kind of happened with um guitar right it's like a bunch bunch of guitarists just were like all right let's just share all of our information and then they're sort of like you know a standing on the shoulders of giants situation they were able to just sort of like volley off each other over the, the last few generations right. to the point right. now where it's just like accelerated like you're saying right
0: yeah it's a, it's incredible think about all the people that are you blink your eyes, and like there's another electronic musician. You wake up in the morning, somebody says, Oh, have you seen this guy? You know, and he's doing something incredible. And you're like, Damn it, too, too many people up, too much competition. But to, yeah. no, but I think, you know, but it also accelerates the art form. It's just a crazy world we live in where, it's, you know, it's hard to even have a new idea because, you know, people are generating, so many people are generating so much stuff all the time, you know, like you think of an album title and you go, oh, I better check on uh, Apple Music and type that in and see what comes up. And mm-hmm. you type in your uh, your title that you thought was absolutely ingenious and creative and new and you find out there's 20 albums that are called that, you know, it's like... That's a little bit tough. Mm.
2: Yeah, I wonder at what point um, you'll just like randomly combine letters from the alphabet to like a giant string of 20 numbers. So it just looks like a generated password from a password manager or something like that. And then you're like, oh, I should check that. And there's also an album called that or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. What year will that happen? That's funny. Yeah,
2: yeah. It would take a lot of albums.
0: But... Did you ever hear about the website where it was an automatic John Anderson, uh, you know, the singer of Yes, obviously, um, an automatic John Anderson word generator? Uh, no, I did not. Somebody told me, I don't know if it still exists, but it was something where it would automatically make up, or the computer would make up words in the style of, uh, of Yes. John
2: Anderson word <laughs> generator. So I imagine this works off. I don't know. Uh, Is it called Virtual John?
0: Uh, Maybe. I don't know. I heard about it. Okay, so yeah,
2: create your own Yes classic. Uh, So how many lines would you like in the song? Let's say 10. A place where you would like to include in your song. I don't know. Let's say Sydney. What's a person's name? Let's say Jordan. Name of the person the dedication is from. Uh, Bill. (laughs) Nice. Uh, There we go. Compose my song. All right. Uh, what do we got this this song is called gate could never be towards sydney it says to love beautifully at sydney looking on all of us leaving after land looking clearly nearing green tree
0: embracing near graceful crystal yeah it's perfect it's, it's perfect i have the melody in my head already <laughs> because of john an <laughs> wow, interesting as, thing as, to talk about um as great as john anderson's and yes his music was or is the melodies are often very like green tree like you know, like very much one note or a few notes, kind of magic notes that he would sing those mm-hmm. spacey. That's a perfect lyric, by the way. Right? Can you uh, print that out and publish it, please?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, copyright <laughs> it so no one else can take it. I wonder
0: go. what the legality is of that because it was generated
2: by a computer. Like, who owns it? Um, probably you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, because I pressed. They the should generator. have a little. They should have a little thing right on there. Do you want to own this? And then it should charge you like you know two dollars and automatically generate like a copyright agreement for you. And then and <laughs> then good. I and then I, I could work with developers and we could create a uh, an additional site where you link it up to the music creation and you actually take those words and make music with it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it just takes like the amount of syllables in the sentence yeah, and generates totally. quarter notes off it or something.
0: Well, more than quarter notes. I mean if I could think it in my head when you were saying it why couldn't a machine take the same rules that were that allowed me to perceive imagine the music and make something
2: See that's yeah that's the thing right there's a lot of people who are into music uh, think that it's not possible for computers to write it but like you just said it's based on a set of rules and the set of rules is pretty finite and pretty limited yeah. and it's and, and it's
0: per style I mean like you know the style of yes what is They have certain kinds of chords that they use and that they don't use, certain kind of rhythmic ideas that they'll, you know, put out there. And that creates the yes sound. Like I was saying, you know, you think about the melodies that John Anderson creates. There's definite rules there, you know. It's not going to have a lot of skips, you know. It's going to be a certain, you might say that, okay, we're going to allow the same note to happen, not more than four notes four times in a row and every time it gets to the fourth note we're going to have a skip of either a a whole step in one direction or a whole step in the next direction and every two or three measures try to have some kind of a tie. I mean like we could literally compose the rules for the computer now and talk to a uh, a coder and have this thing done and you know like probably in about 20 years since these guys are tend to be so slow. I was going to say in like two days. <laughs> in my head, I could have it done in uh, in uh, two days. But, uh, you know, often these things take a little bit of time.
2: Mm, right. Yeah, you, I mean, hardest thing with programming, it seems like, is bugs and stuff, right? Like oh, the first yeah, thing yeah. you write, you you don't expect that one thing is going to interact with another thing in some way
0: and it breaks. <sighs> right. or something. And then keeping up with all the operating systems and all the crap that they have to deal with. And then, and then when you put it out, then you got to deal with all the support issues, and that's a whole nother thing, right? Yeah, that's actually one of the
2: um, when I was talking earlier about um, how you know guitarists have kind of stood on the shoulders of each other, and producers have done the same thing. That's something tech people have done too, and that's kind of I think one reason why tech has gotten so big and popular is because of GitHub. And no, uh, one wait, big wait. thing that happens on <coughs> GitHub is people will write these like pretty complicated programs that do this really specific thing mm-hmm. uh, to the point where like GitHub is basically a giant free sample library of, of code, like boilerplate mm-hmm. code that you can use. Wow. Um, but a lot of the reason why they don't charge for it is because if you charge for it, then you have to offer support, right? And then that kind of like inc- inc- uh, ensconces your entire life of having to deal with emails. So they're just like, wow. you know what? I'm going to offer no support, give it out for free, people can use it, and that's that.
0: (laughs) Right, well, there's definitely something to that. I mean, like, my guys, you know, spend so much time on support. Like, every day you have to put aside time for support, and then also... Every day, somebody says, when is it coming out for this platform or that platform? (laughs) Where's Android? I'm like, but we're only a few guys. And, you know, trying to keep this, uh, not only just keep it supported for the platform that we did release it on, but also trying to come up with some important new, uh, you know, new features, new things to keep the business alive. It's it's a crazy world out there, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, How
2: many, uh, sorry, what was the company again? Is it Wisdom? Wisdom.
0: Wisdom with a Z is my company. Right. wisdom um, music
2: yeah how many how many people is that
0: oh well wisdom music i mean really my wife and i run it but then we work with other with the with, uh, you know different teams sorry to do the coding all oh, right
2: so you, you yeah. kind of so just like, all, contract those people yeah out.
0: exactly exactly a lot of times i just we'll just work on something and then you know we, we uh we have a plan we know it's going to come out and we just get money in the back end when whatever we've been working on starts to sell Mm. and and honestly it's not a it's not um my main business or anything like that of course my main business is Dream theater uh and as everybody knows at this point in time everybody's off the road it's not a whole lot of touring so uh personally i've been spending a lot of time um developing a whole patreon environment
2: Hmm. do you do that you do patreon yeah, actually, this podcast has a Patreon. Uh,
0: oh, that's the okay. only
2: thing I do Patreon for. I have um, so I've been doing a similar thing to Patreon for, for like the last ten years, which is like a website that I have that people can subscribe to, where I regularly put um, uh, sample packs and oh, tutorials awesome. and like uh, project files and stuff like that, so people can just download them and have access to those kind of things.
0: So my, I, so now that I've been home, I've been really focusing on this Patreon because I feel like as somebody who's been enjoying kind of interacting with people and sharing. And, you know, I, I've always been very open and uh, interested in social media. And I was probably one of the first people to get on any kind of like video chat that ever existed years ago. There was a system called Vocal where you could bring different people on the screen, B-O-K-L-E, long forgotten now. It was actually really, really cool. It's uh, kind of like the
2: original Twitch or Ustream or something.
0: Yeah, it was amazing. It was a long time ago. Um, but I love that, and I love to, And as an improviser, somebody who who loves to just sit down and play, I decided that wow, you know, first of all, music is not free. Uh, unfortunately, I hate to break that news to some people out there, and you know, the fact that we also need to eat and feed our cats, and you know, all this kind of like real world stuff. And people should know that uh, you know we're we're doing our art form, and we we want we really deserve to have something in return. And in the climate that we're in today, where You know, an artist like uh, Peter Frampton could have 55 million uh, streams of uh, Baby I Love Your Way and make, uh, what was it, $1,700. There's something really wrong. So, uh, you know, enter Patreon and, and Patreon offers artists like you and I the opportunity to do things and go directly to the fans and have them support our work. And personally I've been finding it amazingly rewarding because it gives me the opportunity to put on my cameras and at this point I've, whole, I've uh, kind of upped my whole live streaming game now. i got a bunch of cameras and I put them all around my Steinway piano and my synthesizer and uh, and I can really share there and I feel like I'm getting something back so there's the um there's this the improvising streaming, or I'll play songs sometimes as well, and there's also an educational part of my uh, patreon where I'll offer you know like chats with with a certain group of people that want to ask me questions about whatever music theory or composition or improvisation, and you know I'll post notation, discuss uh more um you know more theoretical aspects of music and so that's been a, an, another focus. So I'm kind of balance. My day is bouncing between uh, like work with uh, Wisdom Music. These days is very much GeoShred focused because we're about to release all these new physical modeled instruments, but also um, working really hard on developing this Patreon because I'm a big believer in that platform. And I think that it's a nice uh, way to um, educate people to what I'm doing, but also other, other musicians. I think it's really... Uh, important to uh to let people know out there that this is a the world is changing and this is a way that artists are reaching out and creating content and interesting things that should be supported
2: mm. nice well cool man um <clears throat> i appreciate you coming on we've been chatting for like a little over an hour which is kind of where i usually try to cap these because i feel like that's where people's attention span maybe drops a little bit. <laughs> um, but I think we talked about a lot of really interesting stuff, so um, yeah, I really appreciate and you coming on and chatting about all of this.
0: And we even covered SampleWiz, right? I believe. And we even covered SampleWiz, right? <laughs> <laughs> SampleWiz. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Really, really fun stuff. And SampleWiz has a granular mode as well. And we even SampleWiz, eh? <laughs> And it's on your iPhone. It's insane. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It's great. Did you know that Did you know that with SampleWiz, you could record something, and then after you record it, you could take your finger and actually, on the screen, you could move it along and... Did
1: you know that with you could record something? And every finger
0: totally is in, totally independent here, too. so nice. I'll leave yeah, you with that it's crazy how,
2: how <laughs> it's powerful awesome. phones are these days the fact yeah, that a yeah. phone can
0: behave that way is yeah, nutty right, right. totally
2: but yeah man thanks so much again for coming on I, I really appreciate it
0: thank you my friend it's great to see you and to chat about all these interesting things your your questions were uh, thought provoking and uh, things that I, I, I do like to talk about so I, I appreciate that um, so yeah Awesome. Talk again right. till next yeah. time, man. Have a
2: good one. All right. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo of 303podpro.com. You can also support the show get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash mr tunes and becoming a patron uh, please rate and review on itunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it and all the links to my various platforms are at MrBillstunes.com. thank you